This is from the Shobogenzo collection, case 95, the main case. Yunmen once was asked by a monk, what is the Buddha's teaching of a lifetime? Yunmen said, he teaches facing one. The monk said, what happens if he has no listener or nothing to talk about? Yunmen said, he teaches upside down. Commentary. Since the teachings are always manifested in accord with the times and seasons, causes and conditions, Yunmen says he teaches facing one. Forty-seven years of the Buddha's teachings come down to justice. But say, what does teaching facing one mean? The monk is an adept, so he presses the old master and asks for more instruction. This time, Yunman says, he teaches upside down. His whole intent is to knock out the wedges and pull out the nails for the monk. But say, what does teaching upside down mean? If you are able to say a word of Zen on this matter, I will grant that you are able to walk hand in hand not only with Yunmen, but with the old yellow-faced Gautama as well. The capping verse. Facing one upside down, the differences between them are night and day. Dividing the river, half is above the falls and half is below the falls. It's hard to believe, but this sheen is almost over. Whether you had a good experience, experiences, not so good experiences, it moves. You plan something months in advance, think about it, have expectations, and before long, what was that? Did it really happen? Blink of an eye. As we are, a blink of an eye. One moment we're here, next moment we're not. At least not in this form. So tomorrow, we're going to disperse in the ten directions. Go east, west, north, south, and everything in between. So what is it that we have been doing, are doing, and will be doing tomorrow, before we disperse? It's just, just an interesting experience to 
later on reminisce, tell others about? Or can this be a meaningful catalyst to bring a different kind of energy to the world? Is it just about how was your sashin? Did you have good sashin? How was the food? How are your knees? How is your back? Right? That's very self-concerned, very self-centered. But is this why we come here? Is there a why? We talked about it yesterday. Can there be meaning without a why? Now, if we put some kind of contents there, we are here to do this, then that can become the reason. That can create problems. But if the meaning is step by step, while you train step by step, then a different quality arises. And that's the quality we need to share. So it's a meaning and a purpose, but not so much a reason. There are differences there. When we refine, we, we understand. <coughs> and it makes sense. So what is it that we can bring with us, so to speak, tomorrow when we go back to whatever it is we were doing before coming up here? What can we share with others? You know, as we, as we all are very well aware over the past couple of years, we've been experiencing a surge in violence throughout the world and here in our country. An uprising, discrimination, hatred, increasing conflicts between individuals, groups of people, nations. In the midst of all that, we take the time to come here. Now, is this an escape? Is this an, some indulgence? Is this, I need to get some peace, I need to get a break from the madness. I'll go to a secluded mountain, sit quietly, away from conflict away from hatred, away from the toxicity of our presidential period, round. There's a lot of that. And it is toxic. So we come here for what?
maybe we do experience some peace, some quiet, some tranquility. But before long, we also experience the other stuff. Conflicts, hatred, violence, all kinds of afflictions, but we experience them in different ways. In us, And then we have an opportunity to look at that. But we do have to have clarity about what it is that we are doing with Zen practice. We have to understand what is Zen training. You know, it's, it's, a, it's very structured training. Purposeful. Every step has a purpose, and power, and strength, and it consists of many small details, and we call it Zen training. But then we look at it and we ask, well, how can eating in this manner could be Zen training? It's too formal, right? we think. Keeping up with a strict, tight schedule and sitting for so many hours. How does it work? What does it do? So we need clarity about training. We need to know that this is not an escape from a mad world. In fact, this is the opposite of that. This is entering deeper into the heart, the core, the, the source of madness. So we can understand, so we can study where it comes from. This is no small task. I mean, being here cut off from the internet and not being exposed to the stream of madness doesn't really mean we don't experience it. We have our own internet or TV channel that keeps broadcasting. And when you practice for some time, you do realize that the root of hatred, discrimination, conflict is not born out of locations, circumstances. It does not begin when a black person gets shot by a police officer or when a terror attack takes place. This is just how it appears. begins way deeper than that, on a very personal level. And this is what we do. This is what we encounter, what we need to encounter, and we need to work with, and clarify, and free ourselves of. So we can bring that kind of energy 
to a mad world. Many do think that we are escaping. Many who do not practice think that it is an escape. But never mind that, right? Now, people may look at you and say, that, exactly that, you know, you just, you're running away from something. But you know that you're not. And you know that not because you read it in the book or because somebody is saying that. You know that because when you get on a cushion for some time, you recognize that there is no escape. As much as you'd like to, you can't. You recognize that it's exact opposite. That the, the world is mad because it is trying to escape. And what we do is get closer to sanity. Upside down, isn't it? We are upside down. Here we, we may be doing what the mind, the thinking mind is telling us to not do. Right? It says, why do you need to do that? Do you need to go through all this pain, through all, this, through all these difficulties? Do, does it have to be so ritualistic, so formal? Let's drive down the city, have a beer, watch TV, hang out with friends. Right? And, yeah, I understand. I'll do some deep work. Can I do it on the go? While I am involved in what I'm involved in. And the other aspect of coming up here, of doing this, of doing sashims, is that we're not producing anything, right? Our lives fluctuate between being productive or being entertained. That's, you can sum it up, actually. This is all we do. Either we are productive or we look for ways to be entertained. That's it. And this is neither. I don't know that this is entertaining you. <laughs> Maybe it is. Uh, the question is, what are we producing? We are cultivating something, not so much a product, but something that is absolutely necessary. Maybe more so now than ever. So we are creating, cultivating, strengthening. We are getting closer. We are learning how to listen better, how to look more intently, how to be more in touch with the unfamiliar, with the unknown, with the undefinable.
with who we are. We're learning to lose ourselves so we can find ourselves. You know, we walked around the lake yesterday and I, I don't know if you were immersed or maybe partially immersed, but it was incredible, right? The ripples on the lake moving with the wind and the way it reflects the sky, trees, looking around at the forest, how everything seamlessly works together. You look in the forest and you see growth and decay coexisting. Not just coexisting, but needing one another. Thriving together. Not judging, not interfering, not getting in the way. Beautifully harmonizing. look up at the sky and when there's no light pollution you could see a lot more sky more stars more vastness Actually, I just read last week that uh, astronomers discovered that the universe is actually about a hundred times more vast than they thought as if we understood the, the, the other vastness. Now it's telling us that it's even vaster than that. I, I, you know, and when, when you try to think, of, you can't even think about it, but when you try to comprehend this and you realize this is not happening, there's no way I can understand that. So it can either scare you or it can actually relax you into realizing that you don't have to understand that. You do have to experience and embrace it. And then recognize that in all this beauty around us here, in all that beauty, or all this beauty is offering something to us. It's offering a mirror through which we can look into ourselves. We can lose ourselves and find ourselves. We could lose the judgmental, discriminating mind that we pack to go. We take with us wherever we go. And then look at the vastness, look at the harmonious interconnectedness and just be in awe, just be in awe, just appreciate how vast we are and how, and how small-minded we can be. I think we have to appreciate that too, right? Because this is what we are studying. 
This is the study. This is the practice. Now, conflicts are not necessarily horrific, but they're not necessarily something to avoid. It is actually, it could be, it can be a catalyst for change. You know, I was, a couple of weeks ago, I was interviewed by Cree from uh, Austria. A couple of you know her. Some of you know her actually from uh, emails. She's a, a part of, a, of, the, of our Sangha, but uh, yeah, an overseas part of our Sangha. And uh, she writes occasionally, and now she's, uh, she works for a newspaper, Austrian newspaper, and she wanted to write about me, about my life and about what I do. So she interviewed me, and she, one of the questions she asked had to do with growing up in Israel and uh, dealing with uh, conflict, dealing with exposure to conflict, which I grew up with. I grew up in a country that is that has Jerusalem as its capital and it's a place that is considered sacred by three major religions which obviously have many issues about that and fight over that. And I was telling her that as I was growing up, you know, even as a child, I couldn't understand. I was able to understand uh, verbal justifications to the fight and the conflict, because each side has reasons, and the reasons are very justifiable, real reasons. But I couldn't understand how is it that the different sides cannot see the cannot see what is uniting and can only see what is dividing. Well, I, I didn't say it in those words. But it was something that it was palpable that while there are reasons to fight, there are also fundamental aspects which when we are blind to we are doomed to fight each other. There is no other option. Right? So unless we open the eye and recognize what unites us, recognize interdependent of all things, interdependent origination, then we may read about it, but it's not going to affect our lives. And what does affect our life is based on differentiation. Which is not wrong, which is also true. But differentiation without equality is wrong differentiation and equality without differentiation is wrong equality. It's just seeing one side of reality, one aspect of reality. And then getting caught up by that. One of the things that I think that uh, 
I got out of that growing up in Israel is a realization that we, each one of us, is a microcosmos of the same, of what we see in the world. And the conflicts that we experience, that we see, or the results of conflict, are in us. It begins with us. You know, we have thoughts of, I hate him or her, I love him or her, or this or that. Right? Those thoughts float in our mind, and we think, well, those are homeless. But it's not exactly harmless because those thoughts breed other thoughts. And those thoughts come out of the same origin that leads to major wars and people kill, killing each other. Because those thoughts come out of discrimination. Now, this is not really discriminating consciousness because the discriminating consciousness that Buddhism talks about is not, does not have to be something negative. I mean, we have to understand that we look different, that we are not of the same, I mean, we don't have the same appearance. One has many kinds. One has many kinds, and two have no duality. So it's necessary to understand and to be able to discriminate, differentiate. Maybe the word differentiate is better than discriminate, because we have obviously a negative connotation with the word, with the word discrimination. But the point is to not, to not get trapped by differentiation. And to dive into, into a place that, or from which we can see, look at differences without getting caught up by them. Without comparing. You know, an ability to see the beauty, the same beauty, in everything, whether, whether people think there is value to it or not. We take a, a diamond, for example, right, and we think this is valuable. Why? Why is a diamond more valuable than a stone by the lake? Is it? What makes a diamond more valuable? Opinions, ideas, thoughts, or gold, or white people, or whatever. Its uniqueness makes it more valuable, but everything is unique. There is nothing that is not utterly unique. So it's not just its uniqueness, it's the trend, it's what people decide, it's what we decide that has value. And what we decide that doesn't have value, that's where it starts to become muddy and sad.
what we decide or who we decide has no value. And this is how we get trapped. The Yunman is, is asked in this occasion to sum up the Buddha's 47 years of teaching. 47 years. A lifetime. A great deep realization and 47 years of constantly teaching. That's a lot to sum up, isn't it? Of course, human is perfectly fine with taking on this challenge. And he says he teaches facing one. He teaches facing one. Now, what does it mean, facing one? By facing one, is he ignoring two, three, four, five? Do you think it has anything to do with doing one thing at a time? Devoting himself to one person at a time? That may make sense when we think of mindfulness practice, right? Who's that? Who eats one grain of... No, one grain. One raisin, I'm sorry. You said something about the practice of this organization that they teach you how to eat a raisin in an hour, am I correct? Half an hour, I'm sorry. Yeah, you take half an hour to eat a raisin. It's, this is eating facing one. Right? Half an hour for a raisin. It may be skillful, I don't know. But <laughs> or maybe it's a good diet. <laughs> Who knows? So, what is it? What is facing one? Teaching facing one. You know, the Buddha didn't, we never taught to ignore anything or deny anything, right? Turn away from conflicts and suffering. He taught the opposite. He taught to turn towards everything that is going on the multitude of experiences, to take it all in. Well, how is that facing one? And how is not facing one, how does not face, facing one create duality, right? If you are facing one, then there is you and there is what you're facing. And there is a gap. Once a Brahmin asked the Buddha to explain why do people fight with each other? That's a good question, isn't it? Why do people fight with each other? And this guy found the right person to ask the question. So, and the question was divided to two. First he asked, why do non-practitioners fight with each other? And the Buddha said, it is because of attachment to sensual pleasures adherence to sensual pleasures, fixation on sensual pleasures, addiction to sensual pleasures, 
obsession with sensual pleasures and holding firmly to sensual pleasures. Because of that, non-practitioners fight with each other. Because of that. Because of attachment. Because of dividing. Because of creating views and opinions. And then attaching to them. We fight. So then he asked, why do ascetics, right? Followers of a path. I think here he meant more religious zealots. And the Buddha actually warned against that. He warned against not taking the practice too seriously to a point that we, we become rigid about it and identified with it. Because that becomes, actually becomes a more toxic viewpoint and a greater source of conflicts. Hence, what I was saying before about Israel. So the Buddha said, it is because of attachment to views, adherence to views, fixation on, view, on views, addiction to views, obsessions with views, holding firmly to views. Because of that, ascetics fight with ascetics. So it goes from being obsessed with the five senses to being obsessed with the sixth one, the mind, the thoughts. Which is again, is all in the same realm. That's taking medicine, turning it into poison. On another occasion, the Buddha was asked, why do people live with hate? And he said, Beings wish to live without hate, harming, hostility, or enmity. They wish to live in peace, yet they live in hate. I'm sorry, that's the question. Yet they live in hate. Harming one another, hostile and enemies. By what fetters are they bound that they live in such a way? Now this is 2,500 years ago. Do you see how, how relevant that is? How not ancient it is? How vital and crucial it is for us with what we're facing, what we're dealing with. And the Buddha said, it is, it is the bonds of envy and stinginess that bind beings so that although they wish to live without hate, hostility and enmity, and to live in peace, yet they live in hate, harming one another, hostile, and live as enemies. The bonds of envy and stinginess binds us. Comparing, judging, quantifying, analyzing, being too calculating. And we bring it here too. Bring it here too. Some of it remains on a personal level within your thoughts and some of it you share with me.
Why do we do this? Why don't we do that? We should do this. I like this. I don't like that. Opinions, ideas, thoughts. That's the beautiful thing about Zen training. It doesn't care what you want. It doesn't care about your opinions. It cares about you. But not about your opinions. But you care about your opinions. More than you care about you. Because we don't see ourselves when we look at the forest. So all we see is just opinions, ideas, thoughts. Something to compare. Something to fight about. Something to stand on. So it says here that the questioner was delighted by the answer, but wanted to go deeper and press further. So, but sir, what gives rise to envy and stinginess? What is their origin? How are they born? How do they arise? When they arise, what is present? And when they do not arise, what is absent? Great question. The Buddha said, Envy and stinginess arise from liking and disliking. This is their origin. This is how they are born. This is how they arise. When these are present, they arise. When these are absent, they do not arise. The guy kept going. But sir, what gives rise to liking and disliking? This gets better, doesn't it? And then he says, they arise from desire. So what gives rise to desire? It arises from thinking. When the mind thinks about something, desire arises. When the mind thinks of nothing, desire does not arise. So we started this machine with, right? I quoted uh, Dogen, speaking about thinking, non-thinking. That was Yakusan's and then Dogen's commentary about that. So then he says, I would love to know that, right? But sir, what gives rise to thinking? I'd love to stop that, right? And he says, thinking arises from elaborated perceptions and notions. When elaborated perceptions and notions are present, thinking arises. When elaborated perceptions and notions are absent, thinking does not arise. It's amazing to see how the Buddha is, is unpacking it for us, step by step. All the way down. This, this thought that if you remember, with conflict, with hatred. Hatred, conflict, all these emotions, afflictions. All the way down to thoughts. There's a root cause. One thought. One thought. This is one thought. This is not multiple thoughts. It's only one thought. And what he's saying is that the root of all afflictions and conflicts lie 
in the root of that, at the root of that, lie a perception of reality, a personal interpretation induced by our, one of our six senses, the six gates of perception. It begins right there. We smell, we see, we hear, we touch, and perceptions arise, and we are trapped. That's the cycle, that's the process. It induces thoughts, and then thoughts induce more of the same. And we take it so seriously, and we believe it. Now, when you read this, it's not surprising to, to, to see what we see in the world, right? Think about all the millions of people in the world universally experiencing the same reality, the same, not the same reality, but the same craziness of mind, of thoughts. Perception. I recently heard a, an interview on the radio with the co-founder of the Perception Institute. There is such an institute. A woman by the name Alexis Johnson. And at some point of the interview, she talked a little bit about perception that arise, two kinds of perception. Perception that arise out of implicit bias and perception that arises out of explicit bias. So I want to share that with you. She said, talking about explicit bias, she said, it refers to the attitudes and beliefs we have about a person or group on a conscious level. Right? So on a conscious level, we are aware of having those attitudes or thoughts or opinions. Much of the time, she says, these biases and their expression arise as a direct result of a perceived threat. When people feel threatened, they are more likely to draw group boundaries and to distinguish themselves from others, so to create a gap, separation. People are more likely to express explicit bias, biases when they perceive an individual or a group to be a threat to their well-being. Research has shown that white people are more likely to express anti-Muslim prejudice when they perceive national security to be at risk and express more negative attitude towards Asian Americans when they perceive an economic threat. Right? And, and those things are already in us. And what we, what we encounter triggers it. But what, what, what we think is that it, it actually is in what we are looking at, in what we are listening to, rather than in us. So we're not seeing that it is triggered, so, and it makes sense too, because we can bring statistics that will probably corroborate that. So of course, and here's why. And she said, when people perceive their biases to be valid, they are more likely to justify unfair treatment or even violence. And those are expressions of explicit bias. Right? discrimination, hate speech, etc. And all this occurs as a result of deliberate thought. Now, implicit, bi implicit bias, 
he says, refers to thoughts and feelings that are implicit, right? Because we are unaware of them, or, mis or unaware of them, or mistaken about their nature. We have a bias when, rather than being neutral, we have a preference for, or aversion to, a person or a group of people. Thus, we use the term implicit bias to describe when we have attitudes towards people or associate stereotypes with them without our conscious knowledge. So this, is, this, this happens without us even knowing that it's happening. So we don't do it as, as part of a process of a process that makes sense. <coughs> I think this way, <coughs> excuse me, one second. So this is saying that it's not, it does not happen consciously, logically. It happens underground. But yet, it grabs us and controls us and shapes our actions. And she says, a fairly commonplace example of this is seen in studies that show that white people will frequently associate criminality with black people without even realizing they're doing it. They actually work with police officers to, to change that. Because obviously police officers are prone, and some more, some less, but they're prone to that because they are, their job is to identify threat. And they are moved by those biases in them. So this, this group, this, uh, I mean, that, this person and uh, the team that she has, they work with different organizations to try to uh, open it up a little bit. So it's another way to say that some of what we feel is on the surface, is above the surface, and is, is seen, and we can get in touch with more easily. And then some is actually underground. We don't even know why we are operating in specific ways. And this is where our practice comes in. This is a practice of underground. This is a practice not of what is seen, of what is not seen through the eyes, of what is not heard through the ears, of what is not thought through the mind. This is why Zen practice doesn't really care too much about your opinions. This is essential. And this is essentially understanding what is the training about. So the Buddha said, when elaborated perceptions and notions are present, thinking arises. Again, talk about the root cause where it all begins. 
Then the process begins, right then and there. He was talking about the underground level. He was talking about before thoughts arise. So now when he says, when elaborate perceptions and notions are present, thinking arises, does he mean that once this cycle begins, the process of escalating madness is in motion and we are doomed to follow the rabbit hole until it exhausts itself? Is that what he means? Once we are experiencing thoughts, that's it? Right? That, that's not what the practice is saying. Right? That's not what he's saying. He's just saying when they're present, when elaborated thinking is present, Be aware, because this is what's going to happen. Now, what is an elaborated thought, elaborated thinking? What's the difference between this and just the thought? What makes the thought elaborate or elaborated? Who is elaborating? Who is, who is thinking the thought? Who is adding more thoughts to thoughts. So if there's a thought I like or I dislike, it's a thought. Originally, all it is is just a passing thought, which actually wants to pass on. This is nature. Arises and vanishes. But when it arises, there is something in us that identifies, or wants to identify with, it, with it because it wants recognition, it wants identification. So grabs a hold, grabs it, it grabs hold as it passes by. And then it starts to elaborate on it. I am the one who doesn't like this. I am the one who likes that. And that's the beginning. More importantly, I think for us, is that we see that that's the beginning of the same madness we experience in the world. Maybe you say small-scale madness, large-scale madness. But this is just another opinion. It's the same madness. And that's, this is, right there and then, is the moment to catch it. Right then and there. And what we're doing here is, has everything to do with losing ourselves, losing those, not so much the thoughts, but that in us that wants to grab the thoughts and elaborate on them and make something out of them and make a self out of them. Think about everything we do here. We sit together, stoically, motionless, selfless, as one. We sit as one. Then you hear the bell, you get up as one, together. And you walk together, 
to the dining room. You sit down. We eat together as one. The practice is designed for that. You look at the person in front of you, you communicate without saying a word. But you understand each other. You don't need to speak. We clean the balls together. We help each other. And we come here and we chant together. One voice. Your individual voice is lost. We practice oneness. Not just on the cushion. Every aspect of practice is the practice of oneness. And then we hear the, the self, the little self, complain. And says all kinds of things about it. It doesn't want to die. And it knows, it knows, this is its death. It knows, it will not survive this. You stick with the practice, it will not survive. This is why people quit, because they don't want to die. This is the bottom line, people don't want to die. But we all die. So Hakuin said, better die, better die now than later, right? Die now. So you can live your life in peace. So you stop creating madness. You stop adding to the existing madness. Now is that productive? Is that something to take with us, bring down? down from the mountain, share with other people? Is that beneficial? Is there a question? It's obvious, isn't it? But it's not so obvious. Because we make it so muddied. Because we cover it up. Because we refuse to face pure naked reality. This is why Raku asked, is there someone with cold eyes? Someone that can see clearly. That's what's from yesterday's koan. Someone who can see clearly. Someone who's not trapped by discrimination, comparisons. Is there someone who has died the great death? Most people don't practice. Or most people practice what perpetuates hatred and discrimination. Maybe, maybe we need to admit that we cannot avoid practicing. We're always practicing. We're always getting better at something. And you look at the state of our world and you see what we are 
getting better, what we got really good at. We got great at hating one another, killing each other, and on and on and on. We have mastered that. I tell you from experience, the more I practice, the deeper I go to practice, the clearer it becomes. And the why disappears. It just disappears. You disappear. It doesn't matter anymore. It just doesn't matter. What matters is the state of our world what we are doing to each other, and how we can do it differently. That matters. That matters greatly. So, this is, uh, yeah, tomorrow. Winding down, right? Watch out, be careful. This is a very dangerous place to be in. At because the, the tendency for us at this point of a sashin is to pack it up. And if you have, if you were up to this point, if you were able to keep up with attentiveness, with carefully and meticulously practicing, this is the time it starts, it's going to start to deteriorate because you're already driving down the, the mountain. You're already thinking about dinner tomorrow night. And what are you going to tell others about this sashin? Watch out. Remember why you're here. Remember the purpose. Remember what the world needs. And it definitely does not need you to futurize right now. Or at any other time. It needs you to stick around. It needs you to look at the root causes of suffering, hatred, discrimination, conflicts. So let's do that the rest of our time here. Let's go even deeper. More strength, more power. Let's lose ourselves further and further and further. Because there is no other time, there is no other place for that, and there is nothing more urgent than this.